State issue one completely failed on Tuesday, August 8th in a vote of 57 to 43 against it. What does this mean moving forward in the pro-life fight? And how does this affect the abortion ballot initiative that will be on the ballot this November in the state of Ohio? We discuss all of this and more on today's show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ohio Right to Life's Pro-Life podcast. My name is Lizzie Marbach, and I'm the Director of Communications for Ohio Right to Life. And on today's show, we're going to be talking with Phil Williamson. Phil is one of Ohio Right to Life's very own board members. He's an amazing lawyer and very talented at what he does. And he walks us through all of the legal implications that would happen if the abortion ballot initiative was passed this November. So be sure to stay tuned to watch our interview with him. But before we get into that, I do want to discuss what happened on Tuesday, August 8th, concerning issue one. So obviously on this channel, we were talking about issue one quite a bit. It was very important to our organization that issue one would pass. And the reason for that is because this November, the abortion lobby is attempting to enshrine state-sanctioned murder into our constitution. And so issue one would have made it harder for them to do that. And unfortunately, it failed. Um, and it not just failed, but it, it lost by a vote of 57 to 43. So it was a pretty large loss uh, that happened on Tuesday. So what happened there? And, and where do we move forward from here? I will just say as a voice of encouragement to pro-lifers across the state of Ohio. First, the fight is not over. Issue one was just step one to defeating the abortion lobby in the state of Ohio. The real fight will happen this November, and that's what we have to be focused on. But if we can learn one thing and one thing only from Tuesday night's loss, it's that the left and the abortion lobby are serious. They're serious about what they believe. They're, they're serious about what they want to do. And they don't just talk the talk. They don't just have these apathetic beliefs and platitudes that they, you know, rattle off when asked, but they have conviction and they act on that conviction. They go out and they vote and they uh, get their people to do the same and we have to do the same here on the right. We have to do that in the pro-life movement. I think that uh, for so long, we have been lulled to sleep because with Roe there, we felt like we never even had a chance of ending abortion. And so we became very apathetic about the issue. We became comfortable with nothing actually getting done. But Roe's gone and we are able to get things done. We are able to protect life and end abortion in our state. But we have to get serious about that if we want that to happen. And what happened on Tuesday was not us getting serious about that. That was us remaining to be apathetic. And so I would just humbly ask Ohio's pro-life movement to wake up and to recognize what time it is. Uh, we are on the cusp of state-sanctioned murder of pre-born lives being written into our Constitution. Not a court opinion, not a piece of legislation, but in our guiding document that is meant to protect our liberties and freedoms. We're about 90 days away from that possibly being written into Ohio's Constitution, written in the highest law of our land in the state of Ohio. I don't think that I can overstate how important it is that we fight against this and we fight against it clearly with conviction. We cannot be afraid to say that abortion is murder. We cannot be afraid to say that abortion is wrong and that it has no place in our constitution. Our constitution is supposed to uphold and protect our rights, beginning with the right to life. So writing in abortion into our state's constitution literally goes against the very purpose of the constitution, which is supposed to enshrine rights, God-given rights, may I say. And none of us have the God-given right to kill our own children or to kill somebody else's child. That is nobody's right. That is murder. And that is evil. And in Ohio, we should never ever be comfortable with that, even having a chance of happening in our state. And so I would just implore everyone that's listening to me right now 
to really get serious, to get motivated, and to tell every one of your friends and families about what's at stake this November. If we don't get out to vote no, talk to your pastors, get our churches involved. Why are our pastors asleep on this? Why is the Christian movement and the Christian community apathetic about this? As as Christians, from the very beginning, we have been the ones that fight against murder. We have been the ones who fight against injustice. Uh, in the Roman Empire, it was the Christians who were saving the children who were literally getting thrown away. If you look back in the early church, uh, the Romans, the, the culture of the day, the pagans of the day, they were throwing away their children, literally, literally. They were throwing away their children. And it was the Christians who rescued those children who were thrown away. We answered the call at at risk of being burned alive in the street and used as a candle. So as Christians in 2023 in Ohio, I think that if our predecessors in the early church were had, had enough courage to risk death to protect those who are being stumbled away to the slaughter, I think that we can risk voting in an unpopular way in order to save human life. I think that it's important enough that we can risk that. We can risk unpopularity in order to protect life. And so I would just ask that every pro-lifer gets serious and every single person under the sound of my voice uh, shares this message to everyone that is in your family in Ohio, all of your friends in Ohio, and just put on your social media, share, go door to door, do phone banking, get involved, but we need you to make your voice heard. And we need you to go out in November and make sure that everyone that you know also does the same, because this is not a matter of politics. This isn't a matter of disagreement. This is a matter of right and wrong. This is a matter of life and death, but be encouraged because just because we lost on issue one does not mean that we will lose in November. This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for us to lean on God, show that we trust him and do the right thing. Results belong to God. Duty is ours. Results belong to the Lord. That should be our mantra. We should never fear the results of what happens when you do the right thing. We should just trust in the Lord that we can do the right thing and he will bring through what needs to be done. And so I would just encourage everyone to go out, see this as an opportunity and moving forward and a judgment that, hey, we we were too quiet about this issue. We were too lax about this issue. We have lulled an entire society to sleep on this issue. But now we have a chance to wake people up. We have a chance to spread the truth and we have a chance to run the abortion lobby out of Ohio. We have a chance to end all abortion in the state of Ohio. If we do this right, we can save lives. We can protect life and we can build a culture of life, but we have to stand up. We have to take action and we cannot wait any longer. We have to be serious. And if we're serious, and if we're trusting in God, then with God, all things are possible. But if we remain quiet, and if we remain fearful, and don't move out of fear of man and fear of unpopularity or being called names, then I seriously worry about what's to come in November. So with all of that said, we're going to talk to Phil today, and he's going to fill us in about what's really at stake, the evil behind this abortion ballot initiative. He's going to give us all of the details. So I please uh, ask you to listen to the entire interview, take it all in, really understand what is at stake here, and then share it far and wide. Share this message far and wide. Uh, remember to hit subscribe and like if you like this video. That really helps us out in the algorithm and helps this message get out to even more people than it already is. So thank you so much for watching and let's go ahead and get into this interview. Oh, Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. And obviously with uh, the impending November 
ballot initiative that will be taking place this fall. We want to get to the bottom of what's actually going to be on the ballot, what the legal implications are of this uh, proposed constitutional amendment. So do you mind just taking a second to introduce yourself to our listeners and uh, kind of just explain your legal background? Sure. Uh, so I am, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be here and get a chance to walk through this November ballot initiative and, and hopefully help folks understand what's going on. Uh, my name is Philip Williamson. Uh, I'm a lawyer at a large law firm in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, before joining the firm, uh, I went to the University of Virginia for law school. I spent three years as a professional nomad, uh, clerking for three federal judges, uh, Levinsky Smith on the Eighth Circuit in Arkansas, Amul Tapar when he was still a trial judge in the Eastern District of Kentucky, and Ray Catledge on the Sixth Circuit. Uh, spent time as a Blackstone Fellow with Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, John Marshall Fellow, and a uh, James Wilson Fellow. So I kind of I lived in in these legal circles and studying pro life issues for basically the entirety of my legal career. Awesome. So then you definitely know what you're talking about when it comes to the law and it comes to the legal implications that come from pro-life or pro-abortion laws that get enacted. Uh, so could you just kind of break down a little bit of just the, the surface level reading of this constitutional amendment that the abortion lobby is trying to put into our constitution, because for an average Ohioan, when they walk to the uh, when they walk into the ballot box and they they read this constitutional amendment to vote yes or no on it, they've worded it in very vague terms, very um, just sly language that an average voter wouldn't really understand the implications that would come from that. They would read it, and if they're somewhere in the middle, pro-choice, uh, they might not understand the extremity that this would bring. So uh, starting with the abortion issue from the constitutional amendment, could you just break down if this would, would be passed, what would that mean for the issue of abortion in Ohio? Sure. So let me first say, when, when you're reading uh, this ballot initiative, I think the two most important questions to ask is a very simple question. Who and what? And if you'll ask those two questions for kind of each section of the amendment, the whole thing will make a lot more sense. Uh, so the, the abortion part of it kind of tees up in, in section A, first section, uh, which states that every individual has the right to make uh, to make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions, including but not limited to decisions on contraception, fertility treatment, continuing one's own pregnancy, miscarriage care, and abortion. So, right up front, we know this amendment is supposed to guarantee abortion rights. Uh, and this is the first place where you, you see our friends on the other side uh, being deceptive. And that is, they give you a list Right? Contraception, fertility treatment, continuing your pregnancy, miscarriage care, and abortion. And the idea is to make you think that you have to say yes to abortion in order to say yes to other things on the list. Things that you already enjoy the right to do in Ohio and that are not an issue in this election or any other election. You have always, always, always had the right to continue your own pregnancy. You've always had a right to miscarriage care. The only thing that changes with this amendment is adding abortion to the list. So don't feel like you have to say yes to abortion to say yes to the other things on the list. But the second sort of tricky part of this is the, you know, including but not limited to. You ought to ask, what else does that include? Yeah. So as you're, as you're saying that they have this deceptive list to make Ohio voters think that in order to enshrine the right to carry out one's own pregnancy, you also have to enshrine the right to abortion, that the two go hand in hand. And they kind of underhandedly add in the phrase, including but not limited to. And so could you just uh, kind of uh, unpack that a little bit more and explain what, why would they even add that phrase in, including but not limited to? If this is really about enshrining abortion, why would they feel the need to even add that phrase to this amendment? That's a great question, and, and frankly, one I'd love to ask our friends on the other side, though I don't know that they'd give us a straight answer to it. But clearly, they think this amendment is going to guarantee 
something beyond abortion. It's about more than just abortion. Uh, I think the way that the, the amendment is worded, when you have these kind of vague and broad phrases like carrying out one's own reproductive decisions, that, that phrase is broad enough to include basically anything that you might do with your reproductive organs, uh, which includes trying to trade them for a different set. Uh, so, you know, when, when pro-lifers are talking about the ways that, uh, for example, gen, you know, so-called gender-affirming care, trans surgeries, all that gets smuggled into this amendment, it's in that, you know, including but not limited to in reproductive decisions language. Now, I imagine some of our listeners, some of our friends might be asking, look, is, this, is there really a connection between you know, all this transgender stuff and, and abortion. This is where the law comes in. And, and our friends on the other side have believed that these things are connected for the last almost 60 years. Uh, for that, if you'll, if you'll indulge me, we'll take just sort of a brief history of legally how we got where we are now. Uh, so in the 1960s, there was a case in the United States Supreme Court called Griswold versus Connecticut. And the issue in that case was whether a state could ban contraception. The Supreme Court held there is a right to privacy in the Constitution that covers a right to use contraception. When we get to 73 and we get to Roe versus Wade, Roe mostly relies on Griswold to get this, you know, right to privacy also includes a right to abortion. If you fast forward to 1992, when you get Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which kind of doubles down on row, you continue with this, you know, right to privacy, right to make your own intimate decisions language, right? Uh, in 2003, in Lawrence versus Texas, when the Supreme Court struck down state bans on, uh, you know, on homosexual sodomy, the court mostly relied on this intimate decisions language from Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Uh, when you get Obergefell legalizing same-sex marriage, it's relying on Casey and on Lawrence. And then when we got uh, the Bostock decision a few years ago, which found that uh, the, the Civil Rights Act's prohibition on discrimination on the basis of sex included gender identity, it relies heavily on that same language out of Obergefell, out of Windsor, which struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, Casey, Lawrence, the works. And so what you have is kind of a, a thread that runs pretty cleanly from abortion to these transgender issues. They've been sort of litigated as one continuum for the better part of 50 years. Okay. And so honestly, you're the first person that I've really heard bring that up. The This tie that's been very apparent between the two issues over the last century um, through the Supreme Court decisions that the various decisions that they've ruled on um, since the um, Griswold decision and then carrying on. So I haven't really heard much uh, about that and, and bringing up that connection, which is really interesting because like you said in the beginning, when you mention, you know, reproductive decisions, obviously if you're changing out your reproductive organ for a different reproductive organ, or at least attempting to do that, or if you're even just taking a hormone to suppress your reproductive organ from uh, operating correctly or to um, change it in any kind of way, that would affect it as well. I think it's pretty obvious um, for us to make that connection. But even legally speaking, I, I haven't heard too many people actually bring up the other decisions. And I know that Clarence Thomas kind of went into that a little bit more in detail in the Dobbs decision um, in his opinion that that he wrote. Um, but as, as far as so this would enshrine abortion, this would possibly enshrine the right to gender ideology and whatever medical care, we'll, we'll call it, uh, that would come right. along with that. Um, but this would also enshrine both of those things for 
not just adults, but also minors, correct? Because in the word uh, that you mentioned in the beginning when reading the language, it begins with saying individual. And so could you just explain a little bit more about that? Because what we've heard the left say is that the term individual doesn't automatically mean child and that the law assumes uh, that it's talking about an adult when you're making these provisions in a constitution. But is that the case? Would the law actually assume that this is only for adults? Or would the court interpret this constitutional amendment to mean children and adults? Uh, you know, it's always uh, a dangerous game to predict exactly what the Ohio Supreme Court is going to do. And of course, we elect our Supreme Court justices serve, you know, six-year terms. So, the court today may not be the same court we're in front of 10 years from now, right? Um, what we can say is that our friends on the left think that minors have the right to abortion. And this was true under, you know, the Casey regime. Uh, this was true up until Dobbs. Uh, so we, we know at the very least that when our friends on the other side are talking about abortion, they certainly think that, you know, minors should be allowed to have abortion. And the fact that minors should be able to do so without any kind of interference from parents. Uh, one of the places that, by the way, that you'll see this is in Section B, where uh, it talks about where the, the amendment would forbid the state from, among other things, burdening the right to abortion or the access to, to making reproductive decisions. Well, if you ask, you know, ask our questions, you know, who and what, you might ask, what, what is a burden? Well, among the things that the U.S. Supreme Court described as a burden on abortion are parental consent and parental notification laws. Uh, so, you know, this amendment would ban those kinds of, of limits on abortion. You don't need a parental consent law for a 19-year-old. You need a parental consent law for a minor. Uh, so that's, that's at least one other place where it, it's pretty clear to me if you, if you read this amendment against the last 50 years of litigation we've had over abortion in this country. Of course, this amendment is not going to be limited to adults. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, just to see how big of a deal the other side is making this talking point that, you know, we're liars for saying that this would strip parents of their rights to protect their kids from making harmful decisions. Uh, you can tell that it, that they're they're nervous about the truth actually coming out and that they're really trying to hide that fact but i think it's very important for us to recognize what is really at stake here and so uh in in section c well b and c um they go on to explain a little bit more about the abortion and what this amendment would mean for abortion. And it says that abortion can be prohibited after fetal viability, but in no such case can an abortion be prohibited if in the professional judgment of the pregnant patient's physician, uh, if they find that it's necessary to protect the pregnant patient's life or health. And so what does what does that mean? Because we hear a lot of people saying that this wouldn't enshrine abortion until birth. It, this would just be abortion until viability. But it, we we know that the term health has been used to bypass that. And then also, furthermore, in Section C, it also goes on to define fetal viability, and it defines it saying that it can only be decided on a case-by-case -case basis, which I imagine would make it very difficult to draft any legislation um, to prohibit abortion after any uh, specific gestational limits if it has to be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. So could you explain that a little bit more about what implications does this have for abortion and how far into pregnancy would this really force abortion onto Ohio? Sure. So we'll circle back to our two big questions, right? Who and what? The key who question, yeah, the, the state... So the amendment, you know, reads the state can prohibit abortion after viability, but cannot prohibit it if in the judgment of the pregnant patient's treating physician, uh, you know, the, the abortion is necessary to preserve life and health. Well, 
Who is the pregnant patient treating physician? It's the abortion provider. So the state can restrict abortion after viability, but not if the abortionist himself says that the abortion is necessary. That ought to set off some red flags. Uh, you, you might also ask, and this, by the way, goes back to, to the, the transgender sort of issue in, in this amendment. You will notice that you never see the word mother or woman in this amendment. You get this, frankly, grammatically awkward phrase, pregnant patient, treating physician, or pregnant person. Uh, last I checked, that, that's only women. We call them mothers. Uh, but this, this amendment sort of can't even commit itself to the idea that only women can be pregnant. So that's an aside. But, you know, this pregnant patient's treating physician, this is the abortionist. So the state cannot restrict an abortion if the abortionist said that the abortion is necessary to protect the mother's life or health. Our second question, what? What does the phrase life or health mean? Now, the image that our friends want you to have in your head is, uh, you know, the, they'll tell stories of women who you know, have cancer and need to undergo chemotherapy, can't do that because it will, it will harm the child or might kill the child. And, you know, or you have a preeclampsia situation where maybe an abortion is necessary to prevent sort of an immediate death. First of all, query whether that's actually true, uh, but that's not really what life or health means in the abortion context. So you can go back to Roe versus Wade and, and unpack all of this. In Roe versus Wade itself, the Supreme Court said that health includes, quote, emotional, mental, financial, and familial factors that bear on health. So if the abortionist says this abortion at eight months after viability is necessary to protect the mother's emotional health, to keep her from being sad, you can have the abortion. If the abortionist says, As, yeah, this child is going to be too expensive for the mother and the threat to her financial health, you can have the abortion. If the abortionist says, in my professional judgment, the child's father is going to be very angry to learn that this woman is pregnant with his child, that's a danger to her familial health, you can have the abortion. You can be pretty sure that abortion providers are going to certify in every single case, that every pregnancy is a threat to the mother's health. One of the reasons we know this, by the way, is that our, our pro-abortion friends are currently suing to challenge and strike down Ohio's heartbeat bill, ban on abortion after six weeks. One of the arguments they made in court is that abortion is safer than carrying a baby to term. So yeah, if they think abortion is safer than pregnancy, they are going to say that the pregnancy is a threat to the mother's health in every single case. The end result is, in every case, the abortionist gets to decide whether the abortion is legal, not just before viability, but right up until the due date. Yeah, no, it's it's so crazy to think that essentially state-sanctioned murder could be in our constitution and um, that they're trying to be so vague about the language so that they can purposefully sneak that into our constitution. Highly recommend that every Ohioan, before you walk into the ballot box to vote in November, that you would take time to read the amendment and think about the legal implications that could come from this. We've talked about the term individual and how that makes it so that it's either an adult or a child, and that would completely remove parental consent or any kind of parental power to protect your child from making harmful decisions. A, a parent would be just completely cut out of this issue with the term individual. We've talked about how this also would affect the transgender issue and gender ideology where uh, children would be able to get sex change surgeries or uh, harmful hormone blockers like Lupron that have been known to sterilize children, that they would have access to, to these things behind their parents' back or 
or even with their parents' consent. That would be enshrined into law that they would have the right to get those. Um, we've also talked about how this would enshrine abortion all the way through nine months. Uh, one of the last things that I want to talk to you about concerning the legal implications of this is also in section B, number two. So it talks about how uh, not only is the woman or pregnant patient, like they want to call us, uh, it, uh, do, not only are they protected to get abortion or uh, transgender uh, surgery or anything like that, but it also says that any person or entity that assists the woman in getting uh, these surgeries would be legally protected as well, that they would have a right to legally assist the woman or child in getting these. And so what are the implications that come from uh, section B number two? Would that mean that an abuser who, let's let's say a 23-year-old guy that's dating a 16-year-old girl behind her parents' back and he gets her pregnant, would he now legally be protected to take her to a Planned Parenthood and force her to get an abortion behind her parents' back? Would he now have that legal protection as well? So I want to take sort of one quick step back because I think we need to unpack the, the burden language a little bit. This is one of, I think, the two kind of trickiest parts of, of the amendment. So Section B says the state cannot burden, penalize, prohibit, interfere with, or discriminate either a person who's voluntarily exercising the right to make a reproductive decision or against the person or entity that assists an individual in exercising that right. We've got to ask the question, what is a burden? We are not writing in a blank slate. In the 50 years since Roe versus Wade, we have described as burdens on abortion, uh, parental consent laws, parental notification laws, waiting periods, which are critically important. Nearly two-thirds of women report feeling pressured to abort. And a waiting period is all about giving a woman a, a safety valve from that pressure. 24, 48, maybe 72 hours between asking for, for an abortion and getting the procedure. is a It's a chance to stop, to think, to consider options, to have a way to say no to immediate pressure to, you know, take care of it or whatever euphemism you want to use. That's considered a burden on abortion. That's off the books of this amendment passed. Informed consent laws, which we have been fighting about in this country for the better part of 25 years, those have been described, they're described in Planned Parenthood versus Casey as burdens on abortion. Now, Casey said that a state can put burdens on abortion as long as it's not an undue burden, which is why, you know, parole consent and parole notification laws in waiting periods and informed consent laws survive in some fashion in most states. But when you go from the undue burden language of Casey to no burden at all, which is what this amendment would do, we're in a completely different legal regime. All of these laws are completely off the table. Now, <clears throat> what does that look like for that section, second part of, of section B? You know, protecting anyone who, uh, an entity or a person who, who helps a woman get an abortion. The most obvious beneficiaries here, obviously, are abortion clinics and abortion doctors, right? It also includes a person who might drive a woman to get an abortion. This is your Uber driver. This is uh, friend, our friends up in Cleveland who are, you know, running air flights to take women across state borders to get abortion. Uh, this is the high school basketball coach who impregnates one of his players, drives her to the abortion clinic, waits outside in the parking lot, and then takes her home. These people all, you know, the state cannot do a lot to prevent them or to punish them for facilitating the abortion. Um, now, would this also include, um, because we've already tied this to the transgender issue, would this, could this also include a teacher who gets hormone blockers for her fifth grade student without telling the parents, would that protect that teacher as well to do that? It would. It would. Any, no burden on any person who helps someone exercise their, their right to make a reproductive decision. 
So if you can think of a way that you would help a person voluntarily exercise one of these reproductive rights, and you can think of a way that the state might burden that, that, that law is off the table. Wow. I mean, that's just, it's just completely insane. So just to, just to recap, um, so this would make abortion legal through all nine months of pregnancy, zero restrictions. This would strip any current pro-life laws that are enacted that uh, are enacted to protect the woman and the preborn child. Any kind of laws that are currently in place would be removed uh, due to that term burden. This would also enshrine the right to sex chain surgeries and hormone um, blockers or hormone replacing drugs. And this would also protect anyone who is helping a person get those, whether that person is a child and the person helping is an adult or not. Um, so have I have I missed any any other implications that are in this amendment if it passes? Or is that uh, I, I hate to use the term. Is that pretty much it? Because that's a lot uh, that this would pack in and completely. I mean, that would fundamentally change Ohio. But is that everything that this constitutional amendment would do? Or is there anything that we're even missing from that? So I think there, there are two other things that's important for people to know. The title of this amendment is uh, the right to reproductive freedom with protections for health and safety. And that protections for health and safety piece is it's not just, you know, deception or hiding. That part of the title is an out-and-out out lie. Uh, and to see that, let's go back to Section B. Uh, that, that first part says the state shouldn't directly or indirectly burden, you know, individuals exercising the right to reproductive decisions unless the state demonstrates that it is using the least restrictive means to advance the individual's health in accordance with widely accepted evidence-based standards of care. All of that legalese on the back end sounds great. Least restrictive means sounds sort of law-like. Uh, advancing an individual's health seems like a good idea. Evidence-based standards of care sounds great, right? That section is meant to do the exact opposite of what you think. That phrase, least restrictive means to advance the individual's health in accordance with widely accepted evidence-based standards of care is actually meant to gut most of the health and safety restrictions we already have on abortion clinics. Um, most pro-life states have some basic set of rules for abortion clinics to follow. We're talking about things like you have to sterilize your equipment. You need hallways and doors that are wide enough to wheel a gurney through. Uh, because when you are performing a delicate procedure like an abortion, sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes you have medical emergencies and you need to get a person out of the building into an ambulance into a hospital. Well, you can't wheel a person out of the clinic if the door's not wide enough for the hospital bed, right? So states require you to have doors big enough to get out of. Abortion clinics fight these regulations tooth and nail in every single state where they come up. Uh, they took it to the Supreme Court about 10 years ago uh, in Texas and Louisiana. Uh, our friends on the other side refer to them as, as trap laws, targeted laws for, you know, uh, for abortion clinics. Those types of health and safety regulations would actually be forbidden under this amendment because the argument that, that abortion clinics make all the time is that these rules about sanitation, these rules about clinic design are not actually evidence-based or don't actually advance, you know, the mother's health. Uh, so you can be sure that, that they are going to, that once this amendment, if this amendment passes, one of the first things that abortion clinics are going to do is to argue, we don't have to follow these health and safety regulations anymore. So that's, that's sort of one piece. You need to understand this amendment is not creating protections for health and safety. It's actually meant to get rid of most of them. And they're hoping that you don't know what the, what the language in section B actually means. And they're hoping that you don't know the background of litigation and the 30 or 40 years that we have been fighting about exactly these kinds of regulations. Uh, the second thing that you should, that, that our, our listeners should be aware of 
is section C in its definition. The definition of fetal viability is the most important one. This amendment would define viability as the point in a pregnancy when, in the professional judgment of the pregnant patient's treating physician, again, that's the abortionist, the fetus has a significant likelihood of survival outside the uterus with reasonable measures, determined on a case-by-case basis. Our two questions. Number one, who decides? It's the abortion provider. This is not a neonatologist. This is not a pediatrician. This is not someone who is trained in keeping babies alive. This is a person who's trained to kill them, deciding whether the child is viable. The second is what does viability now mean? It means the baby has a significant likelihood of survival. That means more likely than not. As a practical matter, that puts viability around 25 to 27 weeks. It's going to be somewhere close to the end of the second trimester. Under current Ohio law, Viability is defined as the point at which, in the determination of a physician, there's a realistic possibility of maintaining and nourishing life outside the womb. Under current Ohio law, all you need is a fighter scan, and that puts the viability line at something more like 22 or 23 weeks. We're talking about a full month, maybe a month and a half difference between current Ohio definition of viability and what this amendment would do. And you change from having the decision about viability made by doctors who are actually interested in keeping the child alive and shifting that responsibility to a doctor who has been paid to kill that child. That's a wild shift in Ohio law being smuggled in this definition section. Again, hoping that people don't actually know that the definition of viability is changing. They don't know that the responsibility for determining viability is changing. And it just reinforces that in every single case, at every single week of pregnancy, the decision about whether or not to kill this child is going to be made by an abortion doctor who only gets paid if the child dies. That is why you have to vote no if you take away nothing else from our conversation, is that in every, no matter what else you see in the amendment, in every single case, the abortion physician decides whether the the abortion is legal. And if you have been paid to provide an abortion, what do you expect the answer is going to be? Yeah, we're allowing the people that are responsible for killing innocent preborn children Uh, We're giving them the responsibility to tell them when it's not okay to kill that innocent preborn child. It's just, it's, it's so extreme. Um, And like you said, they're, they're depending on voters not understanding that that's the case when they just have, you know, a brief reading over the amendment. Uh, We, I, I guess we shouldn't be shocked that the people that are fighting for this, the, the people that are fighting for the right to kill children, uh, don't really have a real concern about protecting the health and safety of the mother or anyone involved in an abortion. But it definitely is something that needs to be pointed out because they are trying to say the the complete opposite to Ohioans. So, Phil, what is, is there anything else that we're missing here as far as the amendment and and what would your final uh, thoughts be to Ohio voters and our listeners and supporters as far as like what what the next step should be? How can we ensure that this doesn't go into Ohio's constitution? I would say a couple of things. First, in November, show up and vote no. You have to show up. The future belongs to those who show up. Elections belong to show to those who show up. You have to show up. You have to vote. Vote no. Second thing, talk to your friends. Talk to your family members. There are tons of Ohioans out there who don't know what's going on in this amendment, who haven't made up their minds yet, that you have an opportunity to talk to and to persuade. My advice to you is this. Just tell them to read the language and ask, Two questions. Who decides 
and what is being decided? And if you'll ask those two questions, I think most of what we talked about today sort of begins to unfold. Understand that we are not writing on a blank slate. None of these words, you know, have their ordinary meaning. We have been litigating almost every question that is in this amendment for the last 50 years. So you need to know kind of the big picture of what we've been fighting about. But if you need the quick hit takeaways, number one, the amendment is hiding an extreme, almost completely unregulated abortion regime, sort of in a, in a nest of things that sound good or innocent. Number two, this amendment is going to wipe out parents' rights when it comes to protecting their children. Your protection of your kids is a burden on abortion, and that is forbidden under this amendment. Number three, this amendment is going to open the door to puberty blockers, to gender transition, so-called gender-affirming care, and more without parental consent or notification. And, it, and it's going to open that door by pretending the door's not there. That's what including but not limited to is for. That is why the amendment will not say woman or mother. And fourth, at, in every single case, go read the end of section B. In every single case, the abortion provider gets to decide whether the abortion is legal. Everything else in the amendment is window dressing for that point. In every case, the abortion provider gets to decide. Wow. Um, well, I'm just, I'm still blown away that this is on our ballot and even a question uh, for us to vote on in November. But you're completely right. The first step is to get out to vote and to tell all of our friends and family to get out and vote because most Ohioans just, they don't even know that this is going to be on the ballot. Uh, it's going to be an off-year election. A lot of people won't be paying attention. They'll just be going about their their year trying to stay away from politics before the, the messy presidential primaries take place. But this Good is luck. not a time where we can stay away from politics. We, we have to really look at what is going on here because this isn't just about politics, right? I mean, uh, the abortion issue and the transgender issue, I, I mean, it's so far beyond politics. It's a cultural issue and it's a spiritual issue and it's really one that we have to get involved in. It's a very serious thing that we can't be complacent or apathetic on. Uh, my last question that I would have is just, so let's say worst case scenario is this does get passed. What would our next steps be from there? Do we even have any hope of, of uh, challenging this to the Ohio Supreme Court or, or is it, are we done for if this gets enshrined in our constitution? Well, there's a sort of good news, bad news. Um, the, the bad news is a lot of our efforts as pro-lifers really get closed off if this amendment passes. Frankly, the, the sort of good news out of yesterday's election result is that we can, we can move for an amendment, we can work for an amendment to overturn this one at that same 50% margin. Um, we as Ohioans still have the power to vote. We still have that, the power to propose constitutional amendments. And, and I think, you know, step one would be let's start building and laying the groundwork to not just to overturn this, but to create a culture of life, to create policies around life, um, and to support pregnant women and their children and their families in a way that they don't feel like abortion is necessary. We, one thing to remember is that in, in every abortion, every attempted abortion, every unplanned pregnancy, you, you're often dealing with a woman who is frightened, who is isolated, and so much of the abortion regime is about sort of tightening the screws on a woman who already feels frightened and alone, to pressure her to into a quick, panic-driven, crisis-driven decision. And one of the best things we can do, whether this amendment passes or not, is to, in our community, 
be in a place where pregnant women do not feel like they're alone, where they don't feel like they have to make decisions out of crisis, where they don't feel like there are no options, uh, where they don't feel like there's no hope. We as pro-lifers, we, we are pro-life because we think life matters, because we think even on its worst days, life is worth living and it's worth protecting. And that is something that we can push regardless of what happens in November. It's something we must, we must push regardless of what happens in November. So show up in November and vote. But even more important than that, show up in your community. Be people of life, be people of love, be people of hope in your community. And then show up at the polls and vote in November. Amen. Well, I completely agree with everything that you just said. And uh, Phil, do you mind just letting our listeners know where they can uh, stay up to date with you or uh, anything, any work that you're doing? I know that you've been involved in uh, Cincinnati Right to Life and and really helping uh, them out and and their work that they're doing there. So could you just uh, tell everyone where we can stay up to date with the work that you're doing? A lot of my work is behind the scenes uh, with with Ohio Right to Life. Um, so probably the easiest place is, is to follow Ohio Right to Life, Protect Women Ohio. Um, certainly, if you got if you have questions, if you have friends who are wondering what's going on with the amendment, can I talk to someone who knows? Yeah, our friends at Ohio Right to Life know how to get a hold of me, and and you are welcome to to shoot me an email. Call me and ask a question. Uh, happy to happy to talk with anyone. Uh, you can reach me at philipbwilliamson at gmail.com. I check my own emails. Happy to talk if you got questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Phil. And it's a privilege to be able to work beside you at Ohio Right to Life. And I know that you're an amazing fighter for the preborn. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today and just really lay out the facts because there's so much misinformation that's been going around about this amendment. So hopefully this uh, episode will help clarify some of that confusion that's going around. Uh, But yeah, thank you so much. And we really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Awesome.